Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Do me a quick favor. If you like what you hear at Planet Microcap, please take two seconds and give us five stars on Spotify or Apple. This helps with the search engine so that more folks can also discover and engage with all things microcap stocks. I'd like to start off by thanking all of you that attended and participated in the Planet Microcap Showcase Vancouver 2023, including our sponsors, speakers, presenting companies, and in-person attendees. With this being our first event in Vancouver, the turnout was absolutely incredible. We're truly thankful to each of you that took the time to join us in person or watched any of the keynotes or company presentations online. I'm currently working on getting all that content up on the Planet Microcap YouTube channel. We will be back to Vancouver in 2024, but next up, Vegas. Save the date, Planet Microcap Showcase Vegas at the Paris Hotel and Casino on April 30th through May 2nd, 2024. See you in Vegas. Now, my guest on the show today is Tobias Carlisle, founder and managing director of Acquirers Funds and co-host at Value After Hours. It's been well over a year since we've had Toby on the show, and I invited him back for his annual appearance. I feel like a broken record on the pod recently. You know, we've talked a lot about how microcaps are in the doldrums. It's kind of putting it lightly. Uh, Redemptions plus no inflows, small micro strategies, can't raise new capital, et cetera. We haven't really talked about the quantitative reason, you know, actually looking at the data for why the confluence of all these events are happening. Toby is the data king. And he does not disappoint in providing his perspective on what the data is telling us, including one semi-bold prediction about the big R word, recession. Thank you again for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Tobias Carlisle. Toby, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Good to see you, Bobby. Thanks for having me back. (laughs) It's great to have you, man. I mean, look, we were just, we were catching up a little bit right before, and dude, it's been a minute. Like I, I I can't, I now, I mean, I obviously I can go and look at my archives and see when the last time we talked, but I'm going to be super lazy and say, I don't remember last time we chatted, but I think it might've been like well over a year. It's that's probably right. I've been, I was head down for a long time with uh, 2022 is nasty, but uh, looks like we're back. Well, that's why I wanted to invite you on today because I mean, look, even though um, we're recording this on Wednesday, August 30th, this pod, if you're listening to this now, it's it's out on, uh, it should be out on Tuesday, September 13th or 12th, I don't know, one of those days, it's that, that, that week, uh, you should be probably listening to this. So, you know, I, I wanted to kind of start there actually, because, you know, um, I got an email yesterday from a buddy 
that uh, when we published our last issue of the magazine, Planet Microcap Review, we put the, that out last Wednesday on uh, August 23rd. And since then, you know, like, it, you know, he had a stock in the in the magazine that he was following that's now kind of run up, not not run up by any means. And, you know, I'm not totally saying that it was the magazine's, you know, that's the reason or anything like that. But long story short, you know, he wrote me, wrote me being like, dude, you know, you published a magazine, you called the bottom. This is it. Small micro. It's coming back. And I, I don't know, I want to have some positivity here just because like literally every like every article we've talked about, I just published an interview with John John Boyer talking about how, you know, it's a, a poor stock performance. There's no allocation to small micro strategies. So, you know, I figured uh, I'd have you on to see if you're seeing anything in the data to say, are we at a bottom now or is things looking up? I don't know, but I uh, figured we'd start there. I think I wrote an article for... Uh, your magazine, it's a few years ago now, two two or three years probably. And I think it was something like it's a nuclear winter for value, which was yep. true. That would have been pretty close to the bottom um, relatively to the market. That was about as wide, I think, as the spread got. And I think I said the returns from, you know, that kind of value spread tended to be good or better as that spread closed. And the spread... Um, you know, it's been it's been an incredibly long period of underperformance for value that started really, it depends on how you measure it, but you can, you know, 2012, 2010, uh, you know, depending on what kind of tilt you've got in there, which metric you prefer, whether you sort of lean on book value or the flows or whether you are more uh, value as a philosophy rather than value as a... Um, as sort of more of a, an academic factor, the way it's sometimes the way that the quants think about it, depending on how you actually measure it, and you, you you muddy your own returns a little bit by by including or excluding some factors and other things. But let's just say it's been a very long period of underperformance for value, and it's been one of the longer periods of outperformance for the other side of the you know the. It's really been the last decade was really characterized by large growth, and the other side of that spectrum which is small value really got left behind and possibly the reason for that was that the cycle before that was very much small value and probably it got ahead of itself and the spread was very narrow by about 2015 um, i read an article saying that it was the worst opportunity set for value in 25 years in 2015 which um, had historically meant that there were poor returns going forward and those poor returns did end up happening um it was much, much worse than I anticipated, but it wasn't. It, it was uh, it was pretty unpleasant. And I think that somewhere around COVID, somewhere post COVID, really in that between March twenty twenty, which was the end of Q one, and say September twenty twenty, which was you know mid to end of Q three, uh, value sort of hit the bottom and turned around a little bit the way that the way that I measure it. And so I think that since that period of time. Value has outperformed, although it's been it's been kind of bumpy. It hasn't been a straight line. It's been outperforming by a little bit. Well, first of all, it took a long time to get started after co the COVID bottom was out of the bottom. was very much like the stay-at-home stocks. It was all the Zoom, which we're on now, and all those sort of um, newer dot-com type stocks, social, whatever it was, whatever characterized it. And they uh, they outperformed for a long time. Then value sort of got its feet, and value has run a little bit. Then, of course, we ran into twenty twenty two, and just everything sucked. 
and that persisted through some of this year. Although I think that we've we're probably we've the market itself, character, let's say S and P five hundred, has turned around, and it's now five or six percent below its all time high. Um, I think it probably. I don't know. I have no idea whether it gets back to its all time high or not, which was now, which was end of 2021. So we're now 20 months beyond that. I think that um, value has tended to work very well out of a bottom and it tends to do fairly badly towards the end of the cycle because when people lose that fear, they become, it becomes more greed than fear. The stuff that's been going up tends to be the stuff that gets bought the hardest, which is the large and growth and small value almost definitionally gets left behind. So we're in a weird place where I think the value spread now has come into about what it is on average. The the yields in those value portfolios, when you look at them on an absolute basis, are about average um, valuations. So that still means that I still think you get a little value premium. I think value itself as a philosophy is evergreen. The idea of buying something cheaper than what it's worth, to me, that just either that makes sense to you or not, but it makes sense to me that that's the way you, you – I think of them like I don't care so much about what the stock price does. I'm sort of looking at the underlying fundamentals of the business. And if you own stuff that you own stuff that's cheap and it's working pretty well and pay, throwing off cash flows, you're going to do okay. You're going to outperform. And so those portfolios – even at average valuation, you would expect that there should be some premium over the market return. And I would think that there'd be still pretty substantial premium from here. So what I what I think that has been missed a little bit though in all of that is that really small didn't catch a break. If anything, it was like big value did okay, mid cap value has done okay, small value really hasn't done much of anything. So if there's any sort of premium left to be mined, I think that it's really in small value right now. And my portfolios, even – so I've got two funds. I've got a mid-cap, large-cap, which is Zig, and that's um, domestic US. That, that, that I can look at the the portfolio, the, the market capitalization, that portfolio has is pushing as close to its lowest it's ever been. It's like it's really a mid-cap, small-cap fund at the moment. And I've got a small and micro fund, which is deep, and that's really – you know, if you look at if you pull that portfolio up on Morningstar, and you have a look at the little, they do this little circle where they show you where the bulk of the holdings are. Like it sits well below the Russell two thousand. It sits below the, um, you know, whatever whatever the other small and micro type indexes there are out there. Deep sits well below both of those. So deep is holding. You know, basically the the only limitation on deep for house small it can go is the listing rules for ETFs. So that, that's like a, I don't think it can go below $80 million in market cap. And then there's also some liquidity constraints on it as well. But basically the stuff that it's holding is incredibly small and incredibly cheap. And when I, I look at that portfolio, like the PE on that portfolio, which is a reasonable representation of what the earning power of these portfolios is, like this is on an average basis, it's between seven and eight. It's incredibly cheap. All of that stuff in there is very, very cheap. The question is, how does it perform when we go through? You know, I don't, I don't know the reasons why, but let's say where there's probably some um, there's fears of a recession at least. Let's say that there's f- recession fears, and how do, how do smaller micro companies go through a really tough recession? And they tend to be 
uh, impacted quite a lot because they have less access to capital markets. First the businesses down. are, yeah. you know, the single product companies often management's just less experienced, and so they they can suffer a little bit more through that. But I think that they that really they've already sold off, and so whatever happens, they they're really really beaten up at the moment. And I think the future looks pretty good for the very smaller stuff and the very deepest value stuff. So I'm I'm very positive about the future, even though the uh, the last decade has been ugly for value and continues to be so, even though we've had that little, I think the worst of the worst was was the middle of COVID, but it, it's sort of getting close to being back to those depths now, even though it had a little run, but it's kind of, it's come back down relative and absolute. So I, I feel good, but um, the returns profile is not good. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you hit on the main point that I think everybody that's been on this podcast of late and that and just talking anecdotally, you know, when you're especially when you're looking at allocations towards, you know, micro managers, small micro uh, strategies and just seeing some of the performance. It's like, look, if they're the individual stock pickers, for the most part, are doing fine. And they usually do because they know what they're doing. They know where the quality businesses are. They're finding opportunity. They're finding all sorts of inefficiencies because the opportunity set is really massive right now, like especially in microcap. You know, but at the same time, when you're looking at, you know, going more upstream, the folks that do tend to participate, you know, in, you know, probably mid, you know, mid to later cycle in like kind of microcap rallies. There's just a general fear of like, I mean, you guys put out a, a an article or Johnny Hopkins from, from your crew put out that article from Jeremy Grantham about, uh, I think, what was that on August 21st about recession coming and running deep into next year. And everybody and their mother that follows small and micro know you go to recession. <laughs> like those are the first that get killed. And it's already been a two-year bloodbath. Like, so what are we supposed to do with that? And it wasn't great before then either. <laughs> no. So, so it's been, it's been a, like, this is the, I guess this is the, the challenge of being a small and micro investor that, you really, to be a small and micro investor, I think, you know, obviously there are lots of different ways of doing it, but for me to get comfortable doing it, I'm looking at the fundamentals of these businesses. Okay. If there's anywhere where it pays to be a fundamental investor, it is in small and micro because there is a lot of garbage in small and micro. And so I'm saying that if you go through and you find stuff that's cash flowing, well, let's start like stuff that's actually got a business, something that's got some recurring revenues at the very, or, or revenues at least, um, that's if you cut everything out that doesn't have revenue, then that universe of stuff is pretty starts looking like a pretty healthy universe. And you look for the ones that are better businesses in there. And then out of say, I don't know how many there are in there, but a few thousand, maybe more than two thousand. Of that, a portfolio of like there might be three or four hundred that I think are pretty good businesses that are actually, you know, making money. They might be challenged in the fact that they can't grow beyond where they are. They might just be businesses that they just tend to have to pay out a lot of their cash flows because there's not, even though people tend to be in small and micro for the growth, some of these businesses just, they they can't grow, but they've got a little niche where they dominate in a little niche and they make plenty of money in that little niche, but they're too small for institutional size money. And I'm, I'm a it's an institution, I guess, because it's a, an ETF, but it, it's a very small ETF and it's an unusual kind of uh, ETF in the sense that it does buy really, really small stuff. I'm not I'm not so interested in like getting a great deal of money into this thing as I am is just trying to generate pretty good returns, which I think you can do by being selective and buying higher quality stuff. And of the higher quality cheap stuff in there, I think that it looks as cheap as I have ever seen it really in that area. And the businesses are 
that we hold tend to be pretty good businesses that for the most part do throw off cash, do buy back stock when they can. Um, the businesses seem to me, to me to be pretty robust with pretty good cash flow. So I, I think that, you know, when, if you ever actually, if we ever actually get a big crash again, which is entirely possible, all bets are off. Like that, they say correlations go to one, everything sells off, but then they bounce quickest in the stuff that is undeservedly sold off. And so this tends to be why it pays to be in stuff that does buy back stock or has a propensity or has indicated a propensity to do that in the past because they take advantage of the fact that they're undervalued, buy back a whole lot of stock. Hopefully, you've got some insiders who are buying along beside you and they run pretty well out of the bottom. I've been doing this for long enough that I remember the cycles where small value was, um, you know, that was a hot strategy at one point. And it's entirely possible that becomes a hot strategy again in the future. Um, but I think if you want to participate in those hot strategies, you've got to buy them when they're ice cold. And that is where small value is right now. It really is. It's gone from nuclear winter. It's not quite nuclear winter, but it's still ice cold. And I think that that's the that's what sows the seeds for very good returns in the future, low prices and pretty good businesses. So I think that's where we are. And I think that you and I will circle back in uh, five years' time, 10 years' time. <laughs> so I remember that conversation we had where everything was terrible and here we are. We're red hot. Toby, I'll tell you, dude, I've been sing- I feel like I've been singing from the mountaintops to every lay investor out there. Like you, you want to be, you want to be in the game. Now's the time to get in the game. Like right. not, not, not necessarily just buy indiscriminately or anything, but like, if you really want to call yourself, like I'm a small micro cap investor, I'm going to do the work and due diligence. Like, all right, Let's go. Like now, this is, these are these times. Like, sorry, I'm not trying to sound all like, you know. I couldn't agree like, more. I think that's true. You know, I'm not trying to sound all preachery or anything, but like you, it's, it's the truth. Like you want an opportunity. Here you go. Like you just got to do the work. I mean, it's a lot of work. I'm not trying to say it's like the simplest thing in the world, but that every investor I'm talking to, all they're saying is, Hey, I, even if I don't have a ton of dry powder right now, that's fine. Because I'm busier than all heck because I'm doing a ton of due diligence. Because all these companies that I've been following that maybe had some run-ups are all trading 50 to 60, some cases 70% from their 52-week highs. And they're kicking ass. Quality earnings. And it's just because everybody hates small micro. One of the challenges for small micro has been that the returns that have come recently have tended to be in energy and around energy type stocks, which a lot of investors these days have everybody's been burned by the commodity super you know remember that the first 10 years of the decade were of the of the millennium were this like commodity super cycle china's developing yep. china's consuming all of these commodities anything that sells commodities has done really well through that period of time and then that all ended you know whenever it was at the end of the 2010 to 2015 somewhere well, in yeah there. the chat like all the the there was all the issues with the China accounting and everything. I think, what was that? That right. was 2011, I think. The, re- the reverse takeovers and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, Maj, our boy Maj was on it. He, That's he, right. That's Maj right. was on it. <laughs> anyway, sorry. That's good call. Cool. It was yep. it was really hard to tell. Like, I, I remember that period very well because, of course, that stuff screens really cheaply. Like, the, I was a, I was, when I started out as an investor, so I had been an attorney doing uh, mergers and acquisitions and private equity uh, and some small cap stuff in in Australia and the US in San Francisco, tech type stuff. And I had this idea because I saw in the early 2000s when everything got sold off, all of the net nets, the net current asset value, stock liquidation value stuff came, you know, where there hadn't been any for a long time, all of a sudden there were lots and lots of them. 
And I said, the next time that happens, I'm going to go and start doing this professionally. And then that happened in 2008, near the end of 2008, when the sell off got really nasty. There were lots and lots of them around. And I went and bought a lot of them. And that was a, that was a good, uh, that was a good time to get started in small and micro because they all did fairly well out of the bottom there. So I think that's a, that's often, that's a pretty good indication of where you are in the cycle is just how many net nets are around. They're, they're pretty easy to screen for these days. And it, you probably don't find as many of them as there used to be, but the returns to, to, to be fair, the returns to them have tended to still be very good. And it's a, it really is a sub institutional scale strategy. So it's unlikely that it's really ever arbed away by professional money because anybody who does it graduates out of it. But I think that really what it says is that if something is trading at a sub-liquidation value, that's the market saying it's worth more dead than alive, you're really not paying for the business at all. You're just paying for the liquid assets on the balance sheet and backing out all the liabilities. So that, that really is very, very cheap. And they're all terrible businesses and they're all, you know, they're all kind of burning up the liquidation value, which is, it's a little bit of a race against time where you get paid out or you get a bump on the stock before they dwindle to nothing. That's that's the theory. But when they're around, it indicates a lot of cheapness. And so that's the the time when you should be doing all of the work is when all of these things are battered down and really, really cheap. And I, I think we're kind of in that scenario again now where everything is battered down. Everything is really, really cheap. Of course, when you look back, the returns are terrible, which is why particularly lay investors, but many people professional investors too. They say, I'm not going to touch cyclicals because I've been burned so badly in cyclicals. I'm not going to touch small because I've been, you know, you get in, you can't get out and they don't perform. I'm not going to touch value because that sucks. So cyclical small value seems to me like a pretty good place to be at the moment, even though the track record is terrible because when I look at the opportunity set, the opportunity set looks pretty good. So that's where, for the most part, that's where I have been making my bet's not, I'm not like seeking those out. I sort of just, I take what the market gives. I take whatever is cheap and reasonable and hoping that there's going to be a little acceleration in the underlying business. And then the valuation tends to follow the acceleration in the business. You know, it's, it's, a, it's one of the counterintuitive things about investing that the, to find the acceleration, you often have to be, you know, you look backwards and you see falling prices and falling profits and, uh, you know, losses and those sort of things. And if you look closely, you often see there are firms exiting the industry. There's a lot of distress and that's a very good time to buy. And so the setup for small value is pretty good. The only sort of wrinkle to that is is if broader macro issues sort of take over, but the broader macro issues tend to be pretty short-lived, even though it's, you know, it's three to six months, but it feels like a decade of sheer terror. But it, it really is only two or th- one or two or three quarters of of the pain, and this is the time when it tends to happen too. When you're eighteen months into a drawdown, haven't seen an all time high for twenty months, and all of the sort of um, all of the hot money has kind of disappeared, and they're just waiting for a little trap door to open up. The, the funny thing is that there's, as you, you, I'm sure you find the same thing. There's no, I don't know, I don't know a single person, a single serious person doesn't think we're going to go into a recession. No, I, I literally, I mean, people are trying not to say it. It's like one of like, you know, you know, everybody says it, but now, now but you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's one of, you know, it's like a forbidden, you know, but like at the end of the day, like 
Yeah, literally everybody I'm talking to, like that is a that is a legit real fear. And I think it's very warranted. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not gonna even try and make a prediction on when, how long, all that stuff. Like I'm not nearly smart enough to even <laughs> go down that road. But I'll give I mean, you a prediction. Oh yeah, give it, please. Give yeah. Time. Oh, you're gonna give me a dude. I feel like I'm on value after hours myself <laughs> right now. This is sick. All right, go. So I'm getting a little I get a little bit of shit for this, but I don't mind so much. The 10 3 inversion. So Cam Harvey is the uh academic who uncovered this thing. Very simple idea. He looks at the term structure of the um of treasuries and he says that the near-term treasuries tend to trade at a you, know, you get less interest on the near-term treasuries versus the 10-year or the 30-year treasuries. And the reason is that the longer you hold it, the more risk you have of inflation. Um you know, whatever else going on, volatility, just movements in the market, your money is tied up, opportunity costs and so on. And so it tends to be a normal backwardation, which means that the three trades at a discount to the 10. When the Fed comes in to crank up interest rates because they perceive the economy is too hot, inflation is too high, employment is too low, whatever they're sort of, whatever they're looking at, the stock market is too high, whatever, whatever the sort of housing is too expensive, whatever things that they're looking at, where their impact is most keenly felt is at the front end of the curve. They don't really have much control over the end of the curve a lot. I'm not entirely sure. You know, now they're, they're buying MBS and so on, so they probably control the whole, whole curve. But really, the bulk of their, most of their control is at the front end of the curve. So they crank interest rates and the three starts trading at a inverts and starts trading at a premium to the 10. And every time that has happened, going back in the data that we have to I forget where it goes back to but there's I think there's four instances pre-1986 so I think it goes back to the 60s something like that and there have been four instances post-1986 and the significance of 1986 is when Cam Harvey published his paper every single inversion has led to a recession and a stock market crash we've got an inversion that occurred in October 25 last year we remain inverted now which means that the Fed is still stepping on the interest trying to get the interest rates as high as they can or they seem to be that that it's most rapid increase we've seen in the data and we're um we're close to or almost exactly where we were in 2006 right at the very peak of the interest rate raising cycle then the average length of time from the point of inversion to the declaration of a recession is 12 months so that would be october 25 this year literally to the day, not that I think it's going to be that that precise, but October 25 would be an average of 12 months. The shortest it's been is six months, which would have been April, and that didn't happen, end of April. And the longest it's been is January, is sort of 15 months, which would be about January uh, 25, so late January. So any time through this period of time, we would see that inversion leading to the declaration of a recession and probably a stock market crash that comes along with it. Every single time that the Fed has raised rates, they've got to a point in the cycle where they've realized that they probably raised them too much because they get that breakdown in the market, breakdown in recessionary indicators, and then they start cutting rates. And the lag seems to be about two years from the point that they raise rates to seeing the impact and the point where they cut rates and see the impact. So I suspect that if this turns out, if this follows the course of every other inversion historically, and it may not, who knows, but if it does, then 
you would expect to see something at the end of October and it could drag on for a very long period of time. It could be two years because it's been such a very long, uh, it's been such a long period of time between when we inverted and when anything has happened. So the conversation that I tend to have with people is they say, yeah, the inversion happened. Like that was last year and nothing's happened yet. And I say, but you know, the average time is like 12 months, right? So you wouldn't expect necessarily to see anything now, although you would expect to start seeing something soonish, like in the next few months. So that's sort of what I'm watching for. I think that's the most likely date. And then I think it could be quite protracted. We're also at, you know, any stock market measure that you like to look at, it's very, very expensive. The index itself is very, very expensive. And it's highly concentrated in large growth in seven names. Everybody knows what the names are. If you don't hold the names, you've underperformed. If you do, you've outperformed. Having said that, actually, we have slightly outperformed not holding those names because we've had some exposure to energy and some other things that have worked pretty well through that period. And I did, we did pick up Meta as one of the names. Meta sold off, got quantitatively cheap. We bought it. It ran up. We rebalanced out last rebalance date, which was, uh, end of July, I think. So I, I'm, I think that you really want to be in stuff that, so what do you do if you're a long only investor like I am? What should you do? Took the words out of my mouth. There you go. You should be <laughs> careful of the index because the index looks to me to like it's expensive. Uh, that AI run from NVIDIA, you know, NVIDIA's had this crazy run, uh, likely as a result of having used the word AI. I, like the returns are pretty good, but the underlying, I mean, it's justified a little bit. The underlying looks really good. They have grown like incredible $7 billion year on year in revenues to like 11. And it looks like it's going even higher than that again. But the same thing happened to Cisco in the early 2000s when, or, or the late 1990s, when there was this rush to the internet. Cisco was providing the routers. They were selling all the stuff that people were using. They were selling the tools, the picks and the shovels in the, in the gold rush. And I think that NVIDIA is selling the picks and the shovels in this gold rush. And that's why, even though it is reflected in the fundamentals, it's possible that it, it's all of these other firms that are scrambling to sort of buy the chips so they can compete. And it's possible that they've just pulled forward a whole lot of sales from future years. And you might see a stumble there, which might be the trigger for the rest of the market to follow suit. So, I don't know, it could be anything. But I think, you know, the answer is, be careful of the index, but look at the places that haven't participated, which is small cyclical value. So another question, by the way, great take. I, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's my. Why, why would you? Why would you kill that? I, I, and, and listen, I apologize for like you know people probably could call me dumb for even asking this question, but that's fine. I don't. I would get called dumb all the time. But I mean, why would people get mad at you for that take? I mean, you're just looking at the data. You're you're just seeing what historically has happened, and you know, making a. I'd say relatively conservative prediction. Um, I think, I think most brokers, are, most brokers, the challenge for most brokers is that, or, or wealth managers or whatever the case may be, is having people remain invested in their strategies. And so and, they don't like uh, okay. the bearish guys who say, here, we're, okay. we're going to go through a period of, I would say that the way that I invest is I'm fully invested all the time and I take incremental because I'm, I'm youngish, I'm middle-aged, I guess, but I'm young at heart. You're not that much older than me. I've got a long investment horizon in front of me is the way that I think about it. And I've got, I I figure there'll be, I've got seven to 10 more bull markets and seven to 10 more bear markets in me. So this this next one coming, whether it's a bull or a bear, it really doesn't make any difference to me whatsoever. I'm just telling you what I think is going to happen. It doesn't really impact the way that I invest much because I tend to be quantitative and I tend to be down in those, the cheapest stuff anyway. And so I'll be buying the cheapest stuff 
when the market's expensive, I'm buying the cheaper stuff. When the market's cheap, it doesn't really make much difference to me whatsoever. But I, I think I don't. I'm not going to. I'm not going to tell people that it's all fine. And I don't. And and I think it's clear sailing ahead, and you should just stay invested all the time because it's not what I think. I, I think that there's something coming, and I'm. I'm. I think it's going to be worse than usual. I think it's a 2000. It's a 2009. It's a 2023, 24, something like that. So I, another question that I have regarding this, because I think, you know, aside from some of those predictions, you know, and looking at, uh, you know, some of the catalysts, maybe for acceleration in folks looking at, you know, small micro, you know, whether it's value growth, just in general, looking at small micro, small micro is, you know, people like to see kind of just studs, right? They want to see some, you know, an expel, no, not a shareholder. They want to see more, of that and there really hasn't been kind of an just a a knockout you know really great one in a while you know and sometimes that's just from you know organic growth like an expel like you know just continuing to perform outperforming just running the business efficiently growing all that kind of stuff but then there's also just been uh they're also looking potentially for special sits where there's maybe some potential takeout targets and getting nice premiums on that and you know then people start to say oh that's interesting like this one got taken out for this maybe there's some others that are in that pool you know but when you look back at the data that you you're seeing right now and comparing it to the last time you saw the data similar to right now i think you said it was like around 2006 what were some of the activity in m a was it also still relative because it's quiet it's you're not seeing much of late. I mean, you're seeing little mergers here and there, but nothing, you know, no big takeouts, no big, you know, big splashy, you know, wins uh, from any of these microcaps have been around for a while. Yeah. I I wonder if something structurally changed with Sarbanes-Oxley, but it's been a long time now. So Sarbanes-Oxley, I think was like a two, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and basically, it put another million dollars of compliance costs into firms to to become compliant with Sarbanes-Oxley. And so, you know, for a lot of small firms, a million dollars is a material amount of bottom line, and it really affects when you can go public. And so, the result was that I think VC carried their winners through small and micro and they waited until they were big enough to get onto right. an index because they had the money there. They could do it. They didn't need the returns early. Whereas what they used to do was flip them out into the small and micro index. And you could pick up, you know, really good firms there that were going to grow through that index and grow out. And now like, is that what happened? I don't know. I'd, and I don't know if that's a secular change or if that's just a cyclical thing that because we've had such a period of like success for those sort of businesses that it's just that's what happens. It's a fashion and it changes. And I don't really know the answer to that. The thing that I would say is that the, one of the – when I was an attorney, when I was working um, and I was I used to do some IPOs, I used to do lots of different things. But one of the um, articles that I that caught my eye was written by a firm, Piper Jaffrey. Uh, it was called Darwin's Darlings. And the thesis was almost exactly the same that we've been discussing now. They said there are all of these great businesses – that are just too small to get into an index. And even if they can get into an index, it's like the Russell 2000 that they get into, which there's no money in the Russell 2000. No one's allocating to the Russell 2000. No one's allocating to the Russell 2000 value. I can tell you that. So these businesses, are, like they're growing 30% a year. 
They're trading at five times EBIT EV. They've got plenty of good cash flow. The founding family with the founders still there, still running them. They've got plenty of runway. They've got lots of opportunities for M&A, but there's nothing happening in this sector. And they called them Darwin's Darlings because they thought that would be the target for private equity. And then we went into this, that was sort of the late 1990s, early 2000s. And then we went into this golden age of private equity because that's where private equity really folk, private equity is basically small value with some leverage on top of it. So they're, they're targeting the very smallest firms. You know, the, the private equity deals that get the headlines are the bigger ones, but that's not really where private equity operates. It tends to be very much a small value strategy. So I, I don't really know why we haven't seen a lot of action there other than the fact that all of the money has gone into VC and it's all in big VC and maybe private equity, maybe private equity just trades firms between themselves and they don't look on, it's, that's crazy. Like I'm sure they'd be buying stuff off the public markets if they could find them, but maybe the takeout premiums just aren't enticing enough for people who've been struggling in these things for a long time. Having said that, you know, I've seen plenty of Firms that the kind of stuff that I want to buy does tend to get taken out, although the prices are so low that like there's nothing particularly exciting in the bids that I have seen. I think they're stealing some of these companies. Honestly, yeah. a few that I was that I really liked got taken down by private equity and or, or management, and uh, I thought they were really great businesses. That there were a few that were the value value managers who were publicly listed who. I don't want to say who it was, but you know they had like fifty billion dollars in assets. Market capitalization was six hundred million, mostly owned by the insiders, um, paying out close to one hundred percent of their earnings because you know the, there's really no reinvestment opportunity in, in an investment firm, and they all got taken out at prices that were very very low. And uh, I was a little disappointed with some of them, but I think that um, yeah, I think that we probably just need a little bit more. A little uptick in that cycle might bring all of that back again. But yeah. I do think that, that the fact that, that article, Darwin's Darlings, which came out in 1999, and then there was a follow-up in 2001, which was uh, a similar kind of name. It just escapes me at the moment. But that really was the precursor to all of the private equity and activist um, action that happened in the early 2000s. So I suspect the next cycle we see a lot of that private equity and activist action, particularly in small value cyclical oh, stuff probably if we if we go into a recession i think we're going to see a lot of m&a pickup and it's all because th- you kind of you gaming it out a little bit you think okay some of these larger firms are probably thinking themselves all right every ec- every economist every toby out there is out there saying uh we're going to be going into recession sometime between now and january all right th- that usually means that small micro gets continued to be taken out to the cleaners and, you know, then we can start looking at making some bids on the ones that we like, you know, and just try and pick them up cheap. I mean, the other thing about private equity, though, yeah. like they're often thinking about their sell, their sales strategy as much as their, their purchasing strategy. So they're trying to look at, like, if we buy this thing, can we turn around and sell it back onto the public markets? Like, probably not right. the public markets. There's not a lot of IPO activity. And where, where there is IPO activity, it's, again, it's large growth stories that don't necessarily have to have a lot of earnings or business or cash flow or anything like that. Whereas these things are, you know, they're kind of more financial type, you know, it's a financial thesis where it's a, it's not a growth thesis. It's not going to be making money in the future. It's making lots of money now. It's buying back stock. We can take it private, play with the capital structure, maybe merge two of these things together, then flip it again. But there's, 
you know, the the flipping it again is the or, or listing it onto the market is the is their best outcome. There's, maybe there's just not the market yeah, but, there for these things. Yeah, but I mean, they probably have a little bit more of a long term horizon. Like, let's say they buy it up. Let's say that they can they could probably afford, especially if it's throw if that firm they're looking at the smaller ones are throwing off cash. Like, all right, we'll wait two years. Okay, so let's say let's say January is your main starting point for said recession. They're buying up businesses that throw off cash and they're waiting two years out for maybe you know things to start coming out of it. Things start heat up heating up again. Hey, like I said, they're buying firms that are throwing off cash. They can kind of start to merge a couple of things, maybe buy a couple other things, and then you know, two years down the road, flip it. I don't know. I idea. like that idea. I think they probably, I think they probably think, well, if we're going to go into this soft period, we'll get these things cheaper, and then we'll hold them through that cheap period and flip them again. I don't know, but I, I find it a little bit perplexing too. I, I think that there's enough stuff around it. Maybe you've got to negotiate with a owner operator who. You know they're going to want a pretty good premium, and they're probably going to want a pretty good slice of equity too. And maybe it just doesn't make sense financially. Can't get there. Yeah. No, it's a. I mean, we're. It's an interesting time period. I mean, I. Uh, you know. We'll see. We'll just. I keep think the. I, yeah. I think the real answer is that there's a lot of weakness out there that's not that's not captured in the headlines. I do think there's a lot of fundamental weakness out there, and so you need to be very very careful as you're going through these things. So I, we tend to normalized for the most part. So we're trying to buy things that wherever they are on, in any given year is kind of irrelevant. It's, we're looking at the full cycle in a valuation sense, trying to buy stuff that's cheap, trying to buy stuff that's that has the potential to over-earn through a you know, three to five-year period, which is the acceleration out of often out of a cyclical trough. So they, they look really nasty when you buy them, but they, they do get a little bit better after the, the holding period. It's just that this, I don't know what it is. Maybe they're too small or something, but the, I, I think that the weakness in the underlying economy continues to be a real thing. And that's probably the real reason why there's not a lot of action. 100%. I mean, you also have to, I mean, not to go like too like macro, you know, not not necessarily conspiracy, but I mean, look, we got an election coming up next year. Right. You can, I mean, look, there's, I mean, people want to stay in power. You can imagine on the Democrat side, they want to suppress those weak economy headlines as much as right. possible because that there you go like you just if if that starts really gaining traction there you go you're just basically you're handing the election to whoever is the republican nominee at that point right and there's a lot of uh there's a lot of fiscal stimulus out there at the moment too the inflation reduction act you know there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a the, the government's federal government's running huge deficits all of that is stimulative um it's stimulating into a very weak economy, I think. So that's why, you know, inflation seems to have come down after, you know, we had, there was, there was some fundamental reasons for the inflation, you know, just the fact that there were, there were shortages and gluts and all of these weird things going on. So it's really hard to tease out exactly what's happening, but there's some real inflation out there. And even though we're talking about inflation sort of slowing, the genie isn't put back in the bottle by any sense. Of, you know, the inflation that we've seen hasn't reversed course. It's just slowed down. And everybody's still got that sticker shock where, you know, I can see in my own, my mint account, which is the tracks the family spending, like the family spending is up a lot. And oh, it's not yeah. like our, yeah, our quality of life has improved. You know, it's just, we're just spending more money. I said to my wife, it looks like we've got, looked like we picked up a fourth kid on the way through there, you know, like the spending's up so much. <laughs> So true, dude. I mean, like you, it, you took the words out of my mouth again. Like you know, just anecdotally, you know, from going to the grocery store, going to the pump. I mean, inflation sounds like, oh, really? 
Oh, okay. The rate uh, of change is down, but inflation's not down. The inflation is sticky. It's here to stay. And it's across everything, right? It's in yeah. it's in housing. It's in gas prices. Uh, it, it's in groceries. It's it's across everything. And that, that does suck out some of the purchasing power. The funny thing is like the, you know, the, the, the one sector that's kind of been unimpacted by it seems to be luxury. And I, I you know, it's one of the weird things. If you have a look at what luxury did through 2008, 2009, you know, so coach got really, you know, coach, they make the bags. I, it was, it was popular at the time. It was like a successful thing at the time. I bought it at the time. I bought it in 2008 because yeah. it, it got really, it got really beaten up, but the revenues were pretty solid through that. Like the people didn't stop buying that stuff, even though there was a pretty, that was a pretty nasty recession. That was the, that was the real thing. Well, and, let's, I mean, you can think about from a consumer perspective, it's like, all right, I'm already paying, you know, just for consumer staples, I'm paying this. And this is something I really want. And it's all right. I, I'm I'm expected to have to pay that much. Right. right. And if you just really want, you're going to do it. You know, so, it's, so that's an interesting take. And people like that. small luxuries. People do tend to buy small luxuries through periods of like that. So right. luxuries held up really well. Which I find kind of it's it's perplexing, or or maybe it's a little bit sick. It's like the the top end of town's doing very well, and the, the, everybody else is struggling. No coach bags in my house. <laughs> yeah, I, my I, someday I'll, I'll get that Goyard bag that um, I know that my wife really wants. Uh, you asked me about coach. I, I know the bag. I, you know, I, I know, I know a little thing or two about some of these luxury bags now. But um, you know, we covered a lot. Uh, we're almost we're almost there. I mean. I'm sure we could go on for, you know, a lot longer. So, I mean, you want to give us your final take? I mean, you've kind of given us already so much in terms of your, you know, your expectations of prediction. But, you know, let's say an investor is listening to this and thinking that I got to go to the mattresses. Like, okay, like you don't need to go to the mattresses, but how, <laughs> you know, as a lay investor, you know, what, what, what what should you be doing right now? You know, other, if, especially if they're not going to have the time or the energy to go in and make individual, you know, stock picks or anything like that. Well, you should know about me that my default setting is pretty bearish. I'm always like bearish over the next three to five years, but beyond that, super bullish on civilization and humanity. So that's why I, I, I think that, which is a good setting, I think, for a value guy, you want to be making sure that everything's going to survive in the near term. And then beyond that, the upside kind of takes care of itself. You're buying free optionality on the upside. And so in some sense, uh, you know, dark clouds on the horizon are a good thing because it creates those opportunities. The only thing is when I look around at the moment, I don't see a lot of risk-adjusted opportunity for the most part through most of the market. I do think that where there are pockets of risk-adjusted opportunity, they are in places where nobody wants to go because it's small, it's value, it's cyclical. And that tends to do very badly through a recession and a depression. It has done very bad over the last decade. And so people, you know, looking at that will say, this seems like a terrible idea. But I think that if you if you can pull back a little bit and you look at the very long-term historical returns to small value, uh, cyclical particularly, they are pretty good. And that probably the the near term underperformance means that there's some near term outperformance coming too, and if your time frame is five to ten years, which I think it really should be for stock market money, because we don't nobody knows what can happen in the, in the interim, then this is a pretty good time. And if you start now and it does get weaker, then that's that's a good thing. It means that you know because I think that the weakness is going to be the weakness is sort of imminent, 
and it should be over equally pretty quickly. So you get you go into a really nasty period. You know, the, just the, the this is what's going to happen for everybody. You get invested, and then the weakness hits. Like it's just that you can't. It's unavoidable. It's just the, it's an iron law of the market that it's max pain for everybody all the time. So whatever is whatever you do is going to be wrong. So don't worry about that in the short term. You just have to be patient and have a longer term horizon and put money away and just think. I'm not investing one wad now. I'm going to be earning for the next five years as well. So I should invest through that period of time, and you get better prices if the market goes down, which would be a good thing because lower prices mean higher returns in the future. So I think that I think that the US is um, still a great place to be invested. I think it's probably the best place in the world to be invested from a rule of law and from a sort of attitudinal attitude to risk, attitude to investment. You know, the rest of the world hasn't produced things like Google and uh, Microsoft and those big consumer discretionary, consumer staples type businesses. The US is sort of unique in production of those things, and there will be others that come out, even though they don't exist now. I don't know where they'll be, but this is a good place to be. It's good to be in the market for the most part. Your default setting shouldn't be zero invested in the market. It should be, you know, Graham said no less than 25%. I think it's probably higher than that. It should be depending on where you are, you should consult a financial planner or wealth manager or whatever to, to talk about what your default setting should be. But I I think that from my perspective as a small value guy, this is a good time. It's a good place to be. And I think that the f- next decade will probably likely be small value cyclical just because the last decade's been so bad and values are so crushed. Well, I think that's a, a great place to end it. And, uh, you know, look, if anything, uh, you know, apocalyptic happens between now and when this interview comes out i guess we'll have to <laughs> i'll have to bring you on real quick to do an addendum uh in some, <laughs> in some. but uh before i let you go a few names i were mentioned that wasn't clear on disclosure zoom nvidia google microsoft just quick i don't hold any of them yeah i don't i don't hold any of the big stuff the only stuff i hold i hold my funds zig and deep and gotcha. whatever's in those funds um i guess i hold by but I haven't, I haven't talked about any of those through this year. I don't hold any of the big stuff. I don't hold any of the Magnificent Seven. Very good. All right. Well, Toby, with that, where can people go and subscribe to your newsletter, learn more about the funds, and of course, subscribe to the Value Afters, Value After Hours podcast. So I have acquiresmultiple.com has all of the books, uh, has a free screener, has links to the podcast, and um, Johnny Hopkins posts great articles on that all the time. And the funds are zig and deep. And uh, you can either just Google those tickers or, or go through the acquirersfunds.com to find out more. Very good. Well, Toby, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to our next update. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Bobby. It's always fun. Thanks, Matt. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.